The role of the arts in society is a debate that has been of great importance to artists and policymakers. In a new book, The Social Impact of the Arts, Eleonora Belfiore and Oliver Bennett explore the ways in which writers have attempted to articulate the impact of the art and relate contemporary debates to a history of ideas. The idea of the arts as a, as a transformative force is a concept that's been around for a long time, back into antiquity through to the modern day. Um, and your book, The Social Impact of the Arts, um, explores this history. And I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about um, why you felt exploring this history was, was a, a, an exercise that was necessary at this time. Well, it was, uh, in the first instance, a response to current debates about the value of the arts in modern societies and one of the points that we make in the book is that these debates have been stimulated by the era of public funding for the arts and one consequence of that has been that the debate has been quite widespread um, but a, a, another consequence of it has been that the debate has been absolutely linked to questions of funding so rather than a dispassionate um, attempt to uh, analyse how the value of the arts in society has been articulated, it, it is very often turned into the construction of an argument or a case for better funding for the arts. Um, so much of the debate has been informed by attempts to look for evidence to explain why the arts should be funded. And the consequence of that has been that the debate has become very simplified and reductive. Um, and in fact, there is a much more complex intellectual history that's been going on, as you say, for two and a half thousand years that has been much more nuanced than anything that is reflected in current uh, political and policy debates. So that was really the, the starting point, and we wanted to. Um, make a contribution to this discussion and suggest that it would be valuable um, and constructive to reconnect current debates about the value of the arts with this intellectual tradition. Yes, and, and certainly the stimulus for, that made us think that it could be worthwhile to look back in time but it was also the recurring theme in policy debates that we needed a new language to talk about the value of the arts um, and this was a point famously made by Tessa Jowell who at the time was Secretary of State for Culture in 2004 in a personal essay when she called everybody to commit to try to work towards this new language and I am a classicist by training so this idea that we didn't have a language to talk about the arts and their place in society I always found almost bizarre because you know um, having having studied the classics you kind of have a, a sense that these have, have been in fact lang uh, arguments that have been around for a long time so there's a language that is has been out there for a long time um, and that's why and, and Oliver on the other hand has an interest in um, English literature and the romantics and we all have a sense that this language was out there and it had been developed in different places in different times with different arguments and that it was there might be some good in looking back at this history and seeing if any of this language was still relevant today and the surprise was that it, it is very much relevant and some of the arguments that appear in policy discourse 
can be identified in the writings of, you know, Aristotle, Plato, um, and the classics, um, and that and they are recognised. They are different somewhat, but they are still recognisable. Mm. That's interesting because Eleonora was saying there that her training was in she was she's by training a classicist. Um, my interest in this came from work that I'd done on the 19th century, and I was particularly in influenced by many years ago by Raymond Williams's work on this. And, and so that Eleonora had her area of interest and expertise, I had a different one. When we looked around, we found that there was that nobody had actually put all this together and attempt a history of ideas, if you like, or an intellectual history of uh, all those people who had attempted to articulate ideas about the value of the arts or indeed the negative effects of the arts. So we had a, our reasons for doing it were a response to contemporary debates. The decision to do it uh, was informed by an understanding that, that, as far as we could see, nobody, nobody else had actually attempted to do it, and we, we really felt there was a gap in the market. Absolutely. You, you conducted this survey of, of these dialogues and these debates and, and, and this language and mapped this mm -hmm. language, and um, you present uh, your findings as this group of eight categories. You develop this taxonomy of, of claims. Um, can you explain to me a little bit about that taxonomy and why you, the headings that you came up with and, and, and why you kind of settled on those groupings? We certainly had a lot of material to go through and analyse. Um, I estimate that we looked at the writings of about 150 people, including um, philosophers, writers, artists, uh, political theorists, scientists, um, acad academics and researchers for the more contemporary times. So we needed to find a way of dealing with the sheer amount of material. And we looked at the usual suspects, you know, so Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel, um, the people that you would expect are all there. But we also looked at a whole range of minor authors who are not original thinkers but by re-elaborating other people's ideas sort of testify to the fact that certain views have become current and um, so we read all of these material we were looking for recurring themes recurring ideas um, um, so that we could identify broad themes and, and these themes then became our eight categories of claims and the idea was, was that they should be specific enough so that you could recognise the difference between them, but also broad enough that you that would allow you to um, group together a whole range of fairly different um, type of arguments. And they weren't all positive, were they? I mean, you you you, oh, no. you picked up on both positive reflections on the arts, but also negative commentaries as well. In fact, the negative tradition, I would suggest, was for a long time the more creative and original one, and a, and a lot of the arguments developed by the positive tradition that argues that the arts are a positive force for transformation, where I response to, um, and, and, and were born of anxiety um, because of the perceived um, influence of negative ideas. And I think another interesting thing about the negative tradition was that there was also clear lucidity and a clear awareness in the among the writers writing in that tradition that their concerns about the powers of the arts to either corrupt uh, human morality or distract people from more important um, things there was a, set, a clear sense in which this preoccupation had to be translated in policy so already Plato tried to um, 
realise his ideal of the city um, and its ban on the poets in Syracuse and got into great trouble for that. And, and um, the um, Christian Fathers of the Church, we tried to get the theatre outlawed. So there was a sense in which these were not just ideas, they required measures to make sure that people were protected from the negative influence of the arts. But what's interesting about that is that although these ideas about the negative effects were linked to um, policies in classical times, in contemporary times the negative tradition has been virtually forgotten and that relates back to the earlier point about how the debate concerning the arts has become one about funding. So obviously you're going to make a case for funding for the arts. You're not going to talk about the negative impacts of the arts. Um, and yet, um, if you're going to have a serious discussion about what the value of the arts are in societies, you need to um, look at these questions. And We came across all sorts of um, interesting research on this. I mean, one, one area we looked at um, was... Uh, uh, take, for example, the reading of serious novels. This is something that um, I think we start in the first chapter of the book by saying that um, middle-class parents um, like to see their children enrolled in drama and music classes. They like to see them reading serious novels. And the exposure and involvement in the arts is seem to be an important part of their education. Um, but why? Why is the reading of serious novels considered to be an important part of a child's education? Eleonora discovered some research which suggested that there was a correlation, we're not necessarily saying a cause, but certainly a correlation between people who read a lot and underdeveloped social skills. So these are kind of interesting ideas to think about, interesting areas to explore, that perhaps actually there might be some uh, unintended consequences of reading a lot of novels that are not beneficial but these kind of things don't get reflected um, in debates about And of course, arts. we're not suggesting that for that reason um, the government should never fund any literature programmes. Or indeed we've that people shouldn't read books. Absolutely. <laughs> but we're trying to sort of problematise slightly a simplistic um, approach to or understanding of you know what the arts can do to people and just sort of problematise it a little bit. Because ultimately, even if the potential negative effects of the arts is not acknowledged in policy discourse, it is acknowledged in other ways. And we have a board of film classification, which is really, I would say, almost a kind of platonic institution because it's predicated on the presupposition that certain type of performances or films might be harmful to the most vulnerable in society, which are the young. And the idea that it's platonic in its essence, that it really falls upon the state to make sure, and, and to public institutions, to make sure that the most vulnerable in society are protected and sheltered from any potential negative effects of the arts. So policy makers might not talk about the negative effects of the arts, but there is um, an implicit admission that there might be some of that negative effect in the working of some of the public institutions that regulate um, the cultural mm. sector. But one of the implications of all this is, and this was something else that we wanted to try and address um, and really set an example by writing this book, is the way in which research about the arts has become very closely identified with advocacy. Um, so much so that um, many people doing research in the arts do not actually realise that they're engaged in an uh, exercise of advocacy rather than an exercise of research. And we call this in, um, I think we mentioned this in the book, we certainly have in some uh, other related papers, that 
it becomes a process not of evidence-based policy-making, but of policy-based evidence-making. So people go around looking for evidence to actually say that the arts have all these effects, rather than ask the question, do they have these effects? And if so, what are the full range and nature of these effects? I mean, Nora, you earlier on used the word measures. And I think yeah. it's... Has there, I mean, and to bring that to this discussion about evidence-based policy-making or policy-making or policy-led evidence-making, um, when you use the word measures, are we talking about, in, in previous discussions around the arts, about measures to regulate as opposed to notions of actually measuring the arts, which is where we seem to be in terms of the evidence-based approach? Well, I, I think it's interesting if we go back to the origins of this research that we did for this book started with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and Arts Council England together um, had come to the conclusion that the research that had been done um, on both the economic and the social impact of the arts was in many ways methodologically flawed. There had been a lot of academic criticism of this work for the reasons that we've just been outlining. Um, and so they they um, created re this research project and invited bids for people to come forward and uh, come up with ways in which uh, a robust methodology could be developed to assess the impact of the arts. So people came from all sorts of different disciplines to do that, this. And we came along um, and said that um, before you could even begin to develop a robust methodology for assessing the impact of the arts, you really need to set the intellectual context for this and to look at all the work that had been, the very creative work that had been done intellectually with it, which we suggested you know, was with it in this tradition before you could even start on that and we had no idea uh, when we suggested this quite what a big project this was um, and this represented a kind of in fact a major part of the, uh, of the, the work we did on this research project. Another um, consequence of the fact that the debate around the impacts of the arts has been shaped by the needs of advocacy has been that a lot of anxiety, time, effort went into um, trying to come up with a proof of evidence of impact. There actually very little time had gone into trying to understand what we actually mean by impact, what do we actually mean by the transformative power of the arts. And ours was just very basic points of logic that before you can try and find ways of measuring something, you need to have a clearer idea of what it is exactly that you're trying to measure. Um, so on that basis, we thought that we just sort of see what kind of claims have been made for the arts, what kind of, you know, what kind of areas have the arts been found to, or argued to be able to make some kind of change, be it positive or negative, as a, as a first step towards trying to think of ways that you can then assess or study that transformation if it happens. And has there been a change, having sort of looked at that debate from antiquity to the modern era, has there been a change in, in those notions of the intrinsic value of the arts as opposed to the instrumental value? Um, and, uh, and to what extent is, is that a personal transformation as opposed to, I suppose, what we're looking at now, which is a kind of where um, the the instrumental value is being driven towards uh, the 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 transformation of whole public bodies, whole public groups. Mm. Um, has that debate shifted at all? I think an interesting thing that you um, 
immediately find out if you look things historically is the limitation of the um, dichotomy between intrinsic and instrumental value of the arts, which is somewhat artificial, um, and also how the lamentations from um, cultural professionals who lament that new labour has brought about uh, uh, an excessive instrumentalisation of the arts, you know, has to be put into perspective. Because I would suggest that if you are if you're looking for the first lucid, coherent articulation of an instrumental view of the arts um, and um, an instrumental view of the arts as part of um, public policy, then you have to look no further than Plato's Republic. So we're not facing anything new. Um, and it's also very true that if you look at the way that people have thought about the arts and their value and why they're important, this importance and this value has always been linked to what they could do. Um, to the kind of transformation, be it a, a transformation on the individual or on society as a whole that they could bring about. So in that sense, we're not really witnessing anything new. What is new is the emphasis on having to measure, to provide um, proof and um, evidence of this transformation, which is where things get complicated um, as well. But in, in terms of, of, of whether the debates changed, of course, it's important to remember that um, the way in which we're discussing the arts now, um, the very term is uh, an invention of the 18th century, and that prior to that, and Eleanor has just been talking about the arts in classical times, um, there was a very different definition of what that meant. So we have to be kind of quite careful about transposing a debate from one period to another because you're, you're talking about something very different mm. and it, 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 this idea of the arts is being constructed and reconstructed all of the time in um, my own lifetime the whole um, notion of uh, high culture and low culture um, has been subject to a barrage of um, critical inquiry and uh, in a paper, later paper that we've um, um, in fact, just recently published, um, that we've, we've pointed up the difficulties of even determining what the arts might can be said to be, um, because it's such a kind of movable um, uh, concept. You, you, you've, you've mapped out there um, a long history of then of debate around the arts and this this these kind of different definitions and this constantly shifting um, um, shifting sphere but the, the kind of common there's a common message to what you've been mm -hmm. saying about that um, an importance is still attributed to the arts um, regardless of the kind of debate that surrounded it I mean the, the, the arts is still seen as being something that has great importance to society and culture and um, regardless of the, the kind of language and debate that's used to describe that and yet um, we always kind of get this sense, I guess, and you do refer to it in your introduction, that the arts are in a state of perpetual crisis. For something then that does that is is ascribed this this great important central role to our lives, where does this sense of crisis derive from? Where have commentators seen this as, as being coming as being um, born of? Well, the, the sense of crisis is partly, um, uh, in my view, a kind of misguided attempt to try and get greater funding and greater public support so you, you you cry you know these institutions are in danger of collapse we must have more funding otherwise they will collapse so it's a it's a strategy to um, 
and you see it in other areas, you see it in the National Health Service and so on, and it's very difficult to disentangle um, how serious those claims are and to what extent they're sensationalised in order to try and get some kind of political action. Um, that's one reason. The other reason, and this relates to the discussion we've just had about evidence-based policy making, is that many of these um, claims for the arts um, are extremely difficult to substantiate. So if the claim is made that the arts have this kind of transformative effect, then under um, uh, uh, a funding regime that ostensibly, and we might have some things to say about that, but ostensibly says that um, funding programmes will be based on evidence of their benefit, it is extremely difficult to uh, find this evidence for the transformative power of the arts. And so, therefore, the climate has become harsher um, because of the what Eleanor was talking about the need to measure things. And uh, these things, uh, well, you, you could say that the tools do not exist to measure these things, or you could go further and say that they are not actually measurable. And you can measure things that um, are, are not necessarily important, but the things that are really important about the arts, you can't actually measure. So. For both of those two reasons, the um, desire to, uh, uh, um, or, or the the, the um, attempt to attract um, political support by sensationalising the uh, possibilities of kind of Im imminent disaster, um, together with the difficulty of providing the evidence that the funding regime requires, is your explanation for this um, crisis of beleaguerment that we yeah. call it. And then, the discourse of belief. And then it's also, if you think about it, it's a recurring theme. Quite often, um, powerful statements around the value and the power of the art, the transformative power of the arts, were made at a time when the arts were perceived to be in crisis. Already, Aristotle's theory of catharsis, which we argue in the book, is the kernel of the idea from which the whole range of arguments about the positive effects of the arts develop in time. That was a response to the perceived, um, the perceived um, inference of the platonic attack on the arts. And similarly, if you look at a later point in time, the work that the Italian um, humanist writers did to, to salvage the classical arts and classical poetry from the Christian religious um, um, concern with them and scepticism of them was born, you know, the, the suggestion they could have a great moralising educational power and, and highlighting that, that power, that potentially useful effect, was a way of protecting, salvaging poetry from that attack. And the idea of the poet and artist as genius in romantic times was again a response to perceive um, attack of the world of arts by the you know um, growing growing world of industry so the, I think that sort of exaltation and fear anxiety has always been you know going developing alongside one another in over time mm. wouldn't you say uh, and I, and yeah I would and, and I think it continues I mean it was um, it was in the 1950s that um, CP snow and FR Levis had that mm. um, uh, Serbic debate about two cultures, but the two cultures are certainly still with us. And I mean, this is a, a, a techno scientific, predominantly a techno scientific economy, and uh, uh, there is a great deal of debate about how important how important creativity is 
um, within that economy. And I think that's quite interesting to, as an example of the extent to which um, debate about the arts has actually been captured by those industrial concerns. So in fact, we hear much less now about how the arts um, represent um, humanising alternatives to these things, which is how they were um, articulated in the um, Romantic period. And we have now an almost total capitulation to the arts as a, as a, as a form of economic commodity. And, th and that's really what the um, creative industries debate is principally about. Going reading all of these, these, these commentators, though, and you, you, you started talking there about some of the hopes and hopes and dreams that have been ascribed to the arts in, in terms of the transformative um, capability. Are have the, have commentators been um, over, over egging the pudding to an extent? Are they are are the arts able to deliver against the challenges that have been set that that that, that are being set to them by the policymakers? Certainly, I don't know about the commentators from the past that we've mm. looked at, but certainly it seems that there's an extraordinary range of expectations placed today on the publicly subsidised arts, um, which probably are a bit excessive. And certainly, to date, there hasn't been anybody who's been successfully able to prove um, in a way that could you know, um, resist intellectual scrutiny that they can deliver. Um, of course, that's not to say that they don't, or they don't always do, or that it's impossible that they do. Um, it's about trying to find a way in which you can um, ask that question and test the assumptions in a rigorous way uh, without being subjected to the um, pressure of advocacy, which is difficult. The whole notion of the social impact of the arts involves a degree of generalisation mm. that we would question. I mean, we've talked already about um, the notion of the arts themselves is a generalisation and covers many, many different kinds of interpretations. But when you start thinking about impacts, um, how, how can you generalise these impacts? Because the impact of a novel on um, a 15-year-old and the impact of a novel on an 85-year-old the impact of a novel on someone who is healthy and the impact on a novel of someone who is sick, male or female, straight or gay. I mean, there's all sorts of different perspectives that are going to be brought to the reading um, of this novel, and this applies to the um, reception of any other kind of mm. uh, artistic artefact. And how you can, you know, come up with some kind of generalisation about what these impacts are that take account of all these different variables mm. um, seems to us to be an impossible task okay. and that you can maybe begin to talk about how one novel impacts on one person over a period of time but I mean one of the things that we've, we've talked about it and sticking with this example of the novel mm -hmm. it works at unconscious levels as well as conscious mm -hmm. levels so if the person who's reading the novel doesn't even know what the impact is because they're happening at an unconscious level. How's a researcher going to That's find out? You see, what I find problematic with the kind of claims along the lines that engaging um, young offenders in a theatre project will reduce reoffending by X percent is that you there is an assumption there that you can predict the kind of response that 
you know, a bunch of people who are very different from one another um, will have. Whereas the aesthetic experience from the work that we've done as part of the project beyond the book shows that the aesthetic experience is highly subjective and um, it's shaped by all sorts of different variables which will occur in, in, in any number of combinations and different combinations for every different person. So that level of general generalisation um, and expectation of predictability of response is just questionable. Mm. And has the way that we frame these debates and the language that you use and the, the concepts that we're bringing to play here, is that now oversimplified and have commentators in the past had that nuanced understanding and, and developed arguments of complexity that, that we seem to be lacking today? Well, I think the public debate about the value of the arts has become simplified, and that was really the starting point for writing this book. I, I think there is um, possibly some recognition now that some of the um, highly instrumental um, arguments for the arts that have been made over the last 10, 20 years have to some extent been missing the point, and I think that... Um, the debate is becoming more nuanced, but and particularly in an economic crisis like the one that we've got at the moment, um, questions of funding are going to become very important. And so there's almost a, um, a direct relationship between funding pressures and simplicity of debate. Big funding pressures, you've got to get your message over very simply, uh, very quickly, in a way that um, it is hoped that decision makers will um, uh, understand and respond to. Uh, uh, another part of our research has been looking at the actually looking at the relationship between research and policy making, which again is kind of outside the scope of this book, but it's but it, it's raised by these kind of questions, and and I mean other people have looked at this as well. We're not the first to have done it, but the, there is not a linear relationship between research and um, you know you put in the inputs, you put in the research, and out comes the logical. Um, policy decision as a result of that research. It's to do with all sorts of questions, to do with values, political priorities, timing and things like that. And so um, the kind of work that we're doing on the impact of the arts we hope will kind of feed in to these discussions. But in terms of a linear logical consequence as a result of this, um, we, we certainly wouldn't predict that. Um, because the policy making process doesn't doesn't work in that way.